The city of Tannis is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark. The Lost Ark? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What do you mean, Ten Commandments? You're talking about the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Harab and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. Did you guys ever go to Sunday school? Well, well, look. The Hebrews took the broken pieces and put them in the Ark. When they settled in Canaan, they put the Ark in a place called the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, where it stayed for many years until all of a sudden Bush is gone. Where? Well, nobody knows where or when. What does this Ark look like? There's a picture of it right here. That's it. that's supposed to be coming out of there? Lightning. Fire. The power of God or something. You're to understand Hitler's interest in this. Thing. Oh, yes. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. That's Marcus in the movie uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Do you remember who the Raiders of the Lost Ark are? Nazis. And they want to raid the Lost Ark. They want to find the Lost Ark and, and raid it because they believe that within the Ark is power. Invincible power. The power of God. I think we're all kind of looking for the power of God. And that's a bit ironic, you know, because what else is there but the power of God? According to Scripture, everything is created and constantly sustained by the all-powerful Word of God. Everything, everything, everything except nothing, which is evil, the essence of evil, the power of the void. But all things are created and sustained by, by God's word. So technically, all things, everything, is a miracle. Webster's defined miracle this way, as a scientifically unexplained event. The Big Bang is a scientifically unexplained event. Every quantum particle is a scientifically unexplainable, uh, even now Heisenberg's unexplained event. I mean, science really can't explain events. What does it do? It predicts events by describing what normally happens. Science predicts what a power or force will normally do, but it cannot tell you what a power actually is. In the original language of the Bible, then, we, we never find the equivalent of our word, word, word miracle. But instead, we find terms like this, a power, a sign, a, a wonder. An unusual working of power is, is a wondrous sign. The, the ark was an unusual power. It must have been a sign. And you know, it's important to read signs. Perhaps the ark was the revelation of the power Behind all power, what it is, 
who it is. Well, Marcus says the army that carries the ark before it is invincible. The ark was, was power. Remember how the pillar of fire would come down and rest over the ark of the covenant and lead the Israelites um, through the wilderness and into battle. Remember that? Remember how the priests carrying the ark would put their foot in the Jordan River and the Jordan River would part like the Red Sea parted beneath the breath of God. When the Israelites came to the fortress city of Jericho, remember how they marched around the city carrying the ark for seven days and on the seventh day um, as they blew the seven trumpets the seventh time around and the people shouted the walls came tumbling down pretty cool the army that carries the ark before it is invincible the only problem is what army can carry the ark see the ark isn't like a a magic power magic power is power that you can control and in, in that sense all science and technology is a magic power can't can't really be explained and yet can can be controlled the power you can control but the ark is a power that can well control you so you don't judge the ark the ark judges you when the ark was new you may remember this two sons of Aaron they they go before the ark and they die. It kills them. Leviticus 16, God says to Moses, oh yeah, Moses, I, I ought to tell you this. Um, don't approach the ark. Tell Aaron not approach, do not uh, approach uh, the ark behind the curtain and, until he's made all of these sacrifices, until he's taken the blood of sacrifice and sprinkled it seven times upon the copperet. That's what they called the, the cover of the ark, copperet. Yom Kippur is the day every year when the high priest would sprinkle that blood on the copperet. We call it the, the day of atonement. Well, anyway, you don't simply use the ark, is what I'm saying. The ark uses you. You don't work the ark. The ark works you. First Samuel 5, sinful Israel tries to use the ark, work the ark against the Philistines. And the Philistines capture the ark and try to use the ark against Israel. But the ark destroys their own idol. They put it in the temple with their idol. The idol just crashes, falls over, and then wherever the ark goes, the Philistines get sick and start to die. And so after several months, they send the thing back to Israel on a cart. You know, just a cart, no people send it. Get rid of that thing. And as it comes into Israel, these 70 Israelite uh, peasants, I guess, ignorant peasants, they find the ark, they think, cool, let's look inside of it, and they die. And so Israel freaks out, and they put the ark, get rid, just cover the thing, up, they put it in the house of, uh, I think it was, yeah, it's Abinadab for 20 years. And then 20 years later, King David decides to get the ark and bring it into their new capital city of Jerusalem. They put it on an ox cart. As it's coming into the city, the ox cart hits a rock. A fellow named Uzzah, concerned about the ark that it doesn't fall, he reaches out and Uzzah tries to save the ark. Bang! He dies on the spot! The wrath of God breaks out on him, kills him. What, what I'm saying is, you don't judge the ark. <laughs> the ark judges you. You don't me 
mess with the ark. The ark messes with you. You don't save the ark. Well, anyway, Indiana Jones tried to save the ark from the Nazis. For nearly 3,000 years, man has been searching for the lost ark. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. It's like nothing you've ever gone after before. Oh, Marcus, what are you trying to do? Scare me? You sound like my mother. We've known each other for a long time. I don't believe in magic, a lot of superstitious hocus-pocus. I'm going after a find of incredible historical significance. You're talking about the boogeyman. Besides, you know what a cautious fellow I am. Indeed. There's something that troubles me. What is it? The Ark. It is there, Tanis. Then it is something that man was not meant to disturb. Death has always surrounded it. It is not of this earth. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. And so, the Ark is power, the Ark is judgment, and the Ark is presence. The Ark is like the Word of God, which is the very presence and glory of God. Moses would stand before the ark and talk with God, and when he was through, his face would like glow with glory. Well, that's what the ark does. That's what the power does. But let's talk a bit about what it is, what the ark is, and this is where it really gets downright weird. The ark is a container for the law. Exodus 20, on the mountain to Moses, God recites the Ten Commandments, which, you know, is the law. And then in Exodus 25, for six chapters, God goes into great de detail. I mean, if you've read the Old Testament, maybe this has surprised you and you get frustrated with it. He goes into all this detail about the container for the law. And then he goes into all this detail about the container for the container of the law, which is called the sanctuary. And then he goes into all this detail about the priests that are to maintain the container and the container for the container with all this blood sacrifice. And then in chapter 31 of Exodus, God tells Moses that he has called a guy named Bezalel, it means the under the shadow of God, and filled this guy with the Holy Spirit. Why? In order to build the container and the container for the container of, of the law. He's uh, filled this guy with the Holy Spirit, called him to build it with great artistry. Uh, and so the very first guy, check this out, the very first guy in all of Scripture to be filled with the Holy Spirit is not Abraham. It's not Noah. It's not Moses. It's Belzezel, or whatever his name is, builder of the container for the law. Then at the end of chapter 31, God writes the law on two stone tablets with his finger. Before Moses can get them in the container, Israel breaks the law. Moses breaks the tablets. God breaks Israel. 
Chapter 34, God inscribes on a second set of, of, of tablets, stone tablets, uh, the law. Moses gets them in the ark straight away. Good thing. Gets them in the ark, and except for the 70 Isra ignorant Israelite peasants who happen to look inside and dies, it appears that the ark is never opened again. And that's the weird part. You see, I was a lifeguard just out of, out of high school. And we always posted the pool rules, the law, the commandments, so everyone could see them. No running on the cement around the pool, no diving, no glass bottles, least don't eat in the ool. Notice we left out the P and we would like you to leave it out as well. I mean, we posted the rules so everybody could read them. When our kids got older and Susan and I began leaving the house, you know, sometimes for a weekend or something like that, we'd post the rules, the commandments everywhere. Feed the dog, take out the trash, lock the door, shut off the lights. I mean, we'd post the commandments written by the very finger of dad. Why? Well, we wanted them to have the knowledge of good and evil so they could choose the good and and do the good. But, but here, it's like God says, hey, you, you want the knowledge of good and evil? Okay. Here's the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to write it on a stone with my finger. Now you got it. Knowledge of good and evil. First thing I want you to do with the knowledge of good and evil is put it in a box and never, never, ever look at it again. In fact, don't even approach the box without the sprinkled blood, the, the blood that is life. There's something really fishy about Christians and Jews getting so worked up over posting the Ten Commandments in courthouses and courts and, and stuff. According to God, we're supposed to like keep that in a special box called an ark. The ark of the testimony or ark of the covenant, the covenant, the covenant. It's like one covenant. Exodus 25. This is God's description of the box, the ark, 25.10. They... That is all Israel through the offerings and the skilled artistic work of Belzel, full of the Holy Spirit. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Deuteronomy 10.1 just calls it an ark of, of wood. Wood is the Hebrew word eights. It's like the Greek word skulon, which is really a fascinating word because it's one word which means tree, wood, or timber. So if a Hebrew guy were to say, curses the man that hangs on a tree, or gallows, or cross, he'd say, curses the man that hangs on, a, on an eights. Likewise, tree of life would be eights of life, or tree in the middle of the garden would be eights in the middle of the garden. They shall make an ark of, uh, of eights, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its, its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, two rings on the other side of it, 
you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken out, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat, a caparet, caparet, translated mercy seat or atonement cover. It was on the mercy seat that the high priest would sprinkle seven times the blood of sacrifice on Yom Kippur because the blood is life. You shall make a seat uh, for mercy, a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and you shall make two cher cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim, that's plural for cherub, on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces, one to another, toward the mercy seat shall be the faces of the cherubim. Now, this is kind of cool, but interesting at least. Hey, do you remember the last place in the Bible we read about cherubim? at the entrance of the Garden of Eden, right? And what are they doing? They're guarding the way to the tree of eights with one sword that turns every which way. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees the cherubim holding the very throne of God. Those are kind of the only places the Bible really talks about cherubim in that way, holding the very throne of God. You see, cherubs are not flying babies. Okay, it's Valentine's Day, so you're going to be thinking like that. They're, they're not flying. In fact, if you were to see one, you'd like, you'd wet yourself. I mean, you just freak out. <laughs> Faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the seat of mercy on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, of ark of the covenant, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Don't look at the commandment in the box, but listen to my word on top of the box. Ah, that's weird. Well, anyway, this is what the box must have looked like. So what is that? <laughs> What is the Ark of the Testimony? What is the Ark of the Covenant? What is the Ark of God? Well, it's eights. It's tree that holds the knowledge of good and evil. But tree that's covered with a place for mercy, which is blood, that is life. Tree of knowledge and tree of life guarded by cherubim and high priest with a sword that turns every which way. It's there that Moses will meet the word of God, glory of God, the angel, the messenger of Yahweh. And check this out. The glory isn't in the box. 
It's on the box. The glory is not the law, but the thing covering the law, the mercy, the atonement, the blood, the life, God. You know, Scripture says that God is enthroned uh, above the cherubim, referring to the ark, and also, I, I think, Ezekiel's vision. And you'll remember that John the Apostle pictures Jesus as enthroned. Remember that? Upon his cross. And in the Revelation, John sees Jesus standing on God's throne, but he's a lamb, standing as if He'd been slain, and from the throne there is a river, a river of life, a river of lamb's blood that covers the earth. Well, anyway, the ark was like God's throne on earth, or the footstool of his throne uh, in heaven uh, upon the earth. You know, it's from the throne that the king would issue in that day, that's the way it worked, it's from the throne that the king would issue judgment. That means that the copperet was the judgment seat. Which means the mercy seat is the judgment seat. And the judgment seat is the mercy seat. And that's really huge because you see most evangelical Christians tend to think that, well, that mercy and judgment are like opposite things, opposite things. God's judgment, opposite of God's mercy, but on the ark, that is, uh, on the tree, that, that is, on the tree, on the ark, the judgment is mercy. God's not two. He's not schizophrenic. He's not two, but he's one. And so, so his judgment is mercy. And, and yeah, mercy really is judgment. So mercy, don't get me wrong here, mercy can burn the hell out of you. Mercy will cut you. I mean, mercy can reduce you to your constituent parts. Dust. Breath of God. But it's mercy. The judgment is mercy. And mercy is judgment. Now, James 2.13 does read like this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But you see, mercy and judgment are not like enemies. Literally, James 2.13 reads, Mercy glories over judgment. Or mercy rejoices on top of judgment. Mercy covers judgment. Quite literally, mercy covers the law. Or you could even say the law exhibits mercy. Think about it. You can't know mercy unless you know what it covers. In other words, you can't know grace unless you've kind of tasted of sin. You can't really know a Savior unless you know you need to be saved. You can't know mercy unless you know what it covers. So in the words of Paul in Romans eleven thirty two, 32, God consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. In other words, God consigned all to sin that he may have grace on all. In other words, God consigned all to taking the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that all might forever taste the fruit of the tree of life, which is mercy, which is blood shed, which is life, the very life of God. Mercy covers the law. But even more accurately, mercy actually contains the law. The law is contained 
in mercy. So it's like judgment is somehow contained in mercy as a necessary ingredient of mercy and God is mercy, God is love, God is grace. And so Karl Barth writes this, listen closely. The tables of the law with their annihilating commands and threats were hidden in the ark of the covenant and so placed under the throne of grace besprinkled with the blood of atoning sacrifices. In scripture, we do not find the law alongside the gospel, but the law in the gospel. And therefore, the holiness of God is not side by side with grace, but the holiness is in his grace. And his wrath is not separate from his love, but his wrath is in his love. In, in other words, it really is the ark of the covenant. One covenant. The covenant of law is contained within the covenant of grace. The old covenant is contained within the new covenant. You don't get a new God when you get to the New Testament, okay? Same guy. The old covenant is contained within the new covenant, which we discover is actually the eternal covenant. One covenant. Which means Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Which means from the foundation of the world, God said, Jerry, Doreen, Renee, Jeff, Peter, Susan, I will make you in my image. You will see. Yeah, the angels are kind of amazed by this, kind of jealous of this maybe, if that's even possible, but you will see just who I am. I am love. And so he said, put the law in the wood. And then he hung on the wood, bleeding for all the world to see. And all the world will see. Every eye will see him, says scripture. See the glory of love. You see, the law is a description of love. But God is love. When we see him, we see that we're empty of love. I mean, we, we can work the law to convince ourselves that we're really loving. I mean, but remember when Jesus said, he wouldn't talk law, I'll talk about law. He talked about it on the Sermon on, on the Mount. But when we see him, we see that we're empty of love. And then we can be filled with love. Love poured out is mercy. God with us, Emmanuel, God with us is mercy. The glory is not the law, but what covers the law. The judgment is not simply the law, but the one who covers the law with his life. And check this out. This is what I'm trying to say. The power is not the law. It's mercy. You see, the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, they'll tell you that the power is in the law. For when you put faith in the law, you're really putting faith in what? Your flesh, your ability to do the law, your flesh, your arrogance, your pride, yourself, your sin. That is your ability to make yourself in God's image, which is really not your ability. What is it? It's your disability. It's your flesh. But when you put faith in mercy, what are you putting faith in? The power of God. The 
power that is God. Human religion loves law. Sells law, thrives on law. 1934, a U.S. delegate to the uh, Baptist World Alliance Congress in Berlin sent back the following report regarding Hitler's Nazi regime. Okay, I'm quoting Baptist report. It was a great relief to be in a country where salacious sex literature cannot be sold, where putrid motion pictures and gangster films cannot be shown. The new Germany has burned great masses of corrupting books and magazines along with its bonfires of Jewish and communist libraries. Same delegate goes on to defend Hitler as a leader who did not smoke or drink, who wanted women to dress modestly and who opposed uh, por pornography, which, which, which is a good thing. But you see, Hitler loved law. Religion loves law. Religion loves to take it out of the box, flash it around, use it to control people. But real power isn't in the law. Not real power. It's in what covers the law. Historians say that there was really only one institution that didn't cave to Nazi power, that uh, wasn't controlled by Hitler's laws. And check this out, it wasn't the universities. It wasn't the free press was the church, but not all the church. Only those that were called the confessing church, those that did not confess to religion, I mean rules, policy, procedure, and tradition, those that confessed to Christ and Him crucified by religion. Men like Karl Barth, who wrote the Barman Declaration. Men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred for his faith. Men like Bishop, Bishop uh, Martin Niemöller, who would stand before Hitler and argue for the confessing church and for justice and for mercy. And even so, even so, after World War II, toward the end of his life, Martin Niemöller told of a recurring dream with which he had been plagued for years. In the dream, he would see Hitler on Judgment Day. Standing before the throne, on the throne, was Jesus. And in the dream, Jesus would stand up, come down off the throne, put his arm around Hitler, and he would say, Adolf, why did you do those cruel and horrible things that you did? Why were you so evil? Every time, with his head bowed in shame, he would hear Hitler say, because no one ever told me how much you loved me. And at that point, in the dream, Niemöller would always wake up in a cold sweat, remembering that never once in all those years standing before Hitler, never once did he say, Führer, I just want to tell you, my Jesus loves you. He loves you more than you can even know or comprehend. He loves you so much that he hung on a tree for you and died. That's power. That's glory. That's judgment. 
You see, the power isn't in the ark, but the one who stands on the ark. The power isn't in the cross, but the one displayed upon the cross. The power isn't in your judgment, your decision, but God's judgment, his decision. His word, his will. The power is God and God is love and Jesus is love given to us mercy. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, says scripture. That's power. That's God's word of mercy. Which, by the way, creates all things, creates all things, including us and our good choice, which is a decision called love. The law describes love, but God is love. Well, just like every principality and power world ruler of this present darkness, the, the Nazis want the law. So when they get the ark, they don't worship before uh, the life enthroned upon the ark. What do they do? They break the ark and they take, they try to take the knowledge of good and evil from the ark. Nazis. <laughs> Well, it's just a movie. <laughs> but did you notice, because this is kind of interesting, Indiana Jones did not save the ark. The ark saved Indiana Jones. All those archaeologists, politicians, and Nazis did not judge the ark. The ark judged them. It's beautiful! That's where the one Nazi yelled. Do you remember that? I love that. It's beautiful! What was the problem? He wasn't beautiful. Not so much. It's love. And love burns what rejects love. 
And love fills what longs for love, mercy. It destroys what's evil and purifies what's good. Love, love, love is God. God is love, and love, you see, is a consuming fire that destroys evil. Now, now there are some who say the judgment of God won't actually destroy what's evil, but instead endlessly preserve evil in a place that they call hell where evil people are tortured forever and ever and ever without end, and thus evil is never destroyed. And justice is never satisfied. And Jesus is not the end of all things. But according to Scripture, Jesus is the end of all things. And Jesus satisfies his Father's justice. And Jesus destroys the work of the devil. Doesn't preserve it, destroys it. I suspect that on Judgment Day, some folks may be just destroyed, reduced to their constituent parts, reduced to dust, like those Nazis. But that doesn't mean that God cannot breathe his breath back into that dust. That doesn't mean that God can no longer breathe into the Valley of Dry Bones, just like he did in Ezekiel. That doesn't mean that God cannot make all things new, just like he says he'll do, seated on the throne. Now make no mistake, I hope you get this much from this sermon. It sucks to be a Nazi on Judgment Day. So just don't do that. You don't want to do that. But you see, the power on the ark, not only is the power to destroy, it's the power to create power to sustain all things it's the power of God the power of love and you know when we come to the tree when we come to this tree in this table what happens don't we die with him live with him aren't we somehow annihilated by love and then filled with love Isn't our flesh destroyed even as we are born in him? Don't we lose our lives and find them? Don't we surrender to God's judgment? We are judged by love, filled with love, and empowered with love, and God is love. John 12, 31, Jesus cries out, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people unto myself. That's the presence of God, the judgment of God, and the power of God. And he was speaking of the moment that he was lifted on the tree. Matthew 26, 64, as he's beaten by the high priest guards, this is so cool. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus looks at them and he says, I tell you, from now on, henceforth, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on. That means that they saw the power then as they looked at Jesus beaten and then nailed to a tree, bleeding in a garden. Strange power. So you gotta wonder, okay, um, you messing with this God? Is that power? Is that really power? 
Well, let me ask you. Why are you here? On a cold winter morning, when the Super Bowl is in the afternoon? Government make you come here? Did your mom make you come here? What strange power brought you here? 2,000 years later. Well, anyway, we were talking about the lost ark. And so we talked about what it does, what it is, but not where it is. I hope you know that the movie Indiana Jones, that's fiction, okay? Indiana Jones didn't really find the lost ark. We, we, we know this, that several hundred years before Christ, Israel did, however, lose the ark. I mean, that seems pretty significant, right? Lose that baby? I don't know. Nobody knows when they lost it. Nobody knows where they lost it. All kinds of theories, but they lost it. We only know that by the time of Christ, the Jews were all about the law and had like totally lost its container. And it was then that they took Jesus and nailed him to the tree. It was then that they took the knowledge of good and evil and discovered that they were in fact evil and he was good. It was then that they took his life and yet he gave his life and that, my friends, is called mercy and it flows like a river from the throne, the blood of the covenant. From that cross at the edge of the seventh day, Jesus cried out, it is finished, delivered up his spirit and the curtain in the temple ripped from the top to the bottom, exposing the inner sanctuary and the ark was not there. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus entered the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest and, and made atonement by means of his own blood. And so now we can enter through the torn curtain that is his torn flesh, like through body broken and blood shed, the covenant. Well, anyway, the curtain in that old temple rip from top to bottom and that old ark was not there. This is interesting, but uh, doing a little search in my computer word Bible thing, you know, whatever, I discovered that ark is also translated, this word, as, as one other word in, in Scripture, and that word is coffin in, in Genesis 50. Now, I don't know if that's significant, but I find it fascinating that on the third day in the garden where Jesus was crucified and laid in a grave, Mary saw two angels, could, could have been cherubim, one sitting at the place where Jesus' head had lain, and the other sitting at his feet. But the body was gone. The ark was not there. Well, no one sees the lost ark, until an old man named John, exiled on the prison colony of Patmos, has a vision, a revelation. I think he saw what was most real. A he saw the revelation. Revelation eleven nineteen. He writes this, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. You know, Jesus taught that his body was a temple, actually like the temple. And St. Paul taught that we actually are Jesus' body and his temple, God's temple. Revelation 12, John writes, we, he sees that we hold 
the testimony of Jesus. Like a container. We hold the covenant of Jesus. The ark is in the temple, and the temple is us. You know, Jeremiah had prophesied long, long before that one day the ark would no longer be mentioned, Jeremiah 3. And then Jeremiah 31, he says, this is the, he prophesies, this is what God says. This is the covenant I will make with them, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, in them. And I will write it on their hearts. Not stone, hearts. And so in that day you will no longer post the law upon the wall of the courthouse or on the front lawn or uh, in the paper or in your arguments. You'll no longer post the law nor will you turn to your neighbor and say unto your neighbor, you really ought, you really should do the law. No. It will course through your veins. And if they cut you, you will bleed. Mercy. That mercy is the presence of God. His very life in you. That mercy is the judgment of God. On his throne, he said, whatever you do unto the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. That mercy is the power of God. Ephesians 1.19, an immeasurable greatness of power in you who believe. <laughs> Wow. And hey, think about this. Maybe, just maybe, every person is like a, a lost ark. Because ever since the fall, we all contain something, don't we? <laughs> the knowledge of good and evil. And maybe each of us is like a lost ark, just lost as hell. Until we encounter the blood. Until we trust in the blood. Until we receive the blood of the covenant and, and then are, are transformed from a vessel of wrath into a vessel of mercy. And not just a vessel of mercy, the vessel of mercy, the body of Christ, the ark of the covenant. Where is it? What is it? And what does it do? Well, it destroys the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness, and it destroys the work of the evil one. Richard Wormbrand um, is one of my favorite authors. He's dead now. He was actually imprisoned by both the Nazis and the communists in Romania. He used to tell about a woman named Mary imprisoned in one of the Nazi prison camps. Seven, eight, nine, the Nazi guard called out as he counted down the row of women. The commandant had ordered that every tenth prisoner would be killed that day in punishment for the two women that had escaped the night before. When he pointed to the tenth woman, she began to cry out, Please, please, please don't kill me. I have a child. I have a child. She began to plead. The woman that was standing next to her was a woman named Mary Scottsenbaugh. She heard a voice, a, a voice in, in her heart, and, and the voice said this, Mary, step forward and say that you wish to die in her place. Mary said, 
that she replied to the voice. Why? I know this woman, she's a Jew and she's a communist. When the communists come to power, after the Nazis are kicked out, they'll be just as bad or worse than the Nazis. She, she judged her with her knowledge of good and evil and then she heard the voice say this, on a day like this, Mary, I died. Not for the good ones, but for the bad ones, sinners. And at that, Mary Scossenbaugh stepped forward and said, I would like to die in this woman's place. For some reason, the Nazis agreed. As she was taken to her execution in uh, the chamber, I guess it was the gas chambers where she would be burned, she turned to the guards that were walking her there and, and she said, uh, in the Bible, it said that when God led his people out of the wilderness, he would walk before them in a pillar of fire which would move above the ark. I pray that my body would be a pillar of fire and it would lead you to my God. Where's the ark? The beginning of the day on which Jesus was nailed to a tree in the garden, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, torn, given to you. Take it and eat it. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant. Some places he says new covenant. Uh, two places in two of the gospels he just says the covenant. Uh, in Hebrews we find it, it's an eternal covenant. This is the covenant in my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it. All of you. Well, now each one of you already contains something. You already contain the knowledge of good and evil. We kind of like stole it in a garden long ago. And that's why you get nervous about coming to church. That's why you sometimes feel ashamed to pray. That's why you feel driven to soothe your sorrows and things that aren't God, uh, sin. We each contain the knowledge of good and evil, and so come to the table and be covered with life. The blood is life. It's mercy. So where is the ark of God? In the sanctuary, duh, right? Oh, the, ar the army that carries the ark before it is invincible. But, but what army can carry the ark? Well, watch. It's the people that come to this table and drink fire. Strange fire. Strange glory. Strange presence. But I'm telling you what. It's invincible. In Jesus' name. Believe the gospel and worship. 
Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. They're both mercy. Amen? So pray with me. Say these words after me. Lord God, I surrender this old box of flesh to you. Thank you for writing your word, your law, upon my heart. And thank you for covering me with mercy. Amen. The army which carries the ark before it is invincible. And I just saw you come up here and um, carry the ark. Actually, you're carrying it right now in your gut. That means like you are the ark and you have a power that is invincible. I know it says strange power. And it means that you are the very judgment of God walking around in this world. You are the demonstration of his mercy and his grace. You proclaim the eternal covenant. And you are even his glory. The new Jerusalem coming down that bears the very glory of God. And so cheer up. <laughs> okay? You need to believe that. Why do you need to believe that? Because if you don't believe that, you'll start uh, utilizing all sorts of powers. Powers that'll kill you. Powers that destroy, and not powers that create. And so not only believe the gospel, trust the gospel, and be the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey there, I hope the message that you just heard or viewed helped you to believe a little more that God is better than you thought, the love of Jesus is deeper than you know, and the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. If that's so, I'd love it if you would consider two things. Number one, ask yourself if there's someone that you know that might benefit from this message, and then uh, forward this link on to them. There are several ways that you can do that by visiting our website at thesanctuarydowntown.org. Secondly, I'd love it if you'd uh, take just a moment and uh, ask the Lord if He'd like you to contribute to this endeavor financially. We really can't do this except for the fact that God inspires people like you um, to give. And uh, you can do that by uh, going to the website and clicking on uh, the donate button or uh, by simply mailing a check to the sanctuary downtown at uh, 2215 West 30th Avenue, Denver, Colorado, 80211. Uh, thanks for being a part of what we're doing, and God bless you.